Give us some great penetrating and supreme wisdom. I'll do my best. Um, <clears throat> great penetrating and supreme wisdom. A monk asked my uh, master Zhang of Xinyang, the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom sat at the site of enlightenment for 10 kalpas, but Buddha Dharma did not appear to him. How was it that he did not achieve the Buddha path? Master Zhang replied, this question is most appropriate. The monk said, since he sat at the side of enlightenment for 10 eons or kalpas, why did he not achieve the Buddha path? Zhang said, because he did not. And now we'll sit for five minutes. Now I think it's uh, Trouty's turn to read the koan and Wilman's comment. And Trouty, you're uh, muted. I don't see the bar on the, on the iPad. It's covered up, so thank you. Wilman's comment. You may know the old barbarian, but you are not allowed to understand him. If an ordinary person knows, he becomes a sage. If a sage understands, he becomes an ordinary person. Putting the body at ease is not as good as putting the mind to rest. If you can put to rest the mind, the body will not be worrisome. If you can put to rest both body and mind, what need is there for gods and immortals to sanction or assist you? Okay, and, and we normally read the um, koan too. Glenn, you want to read the koan once more? You bet. <laughs> Great penetrating and supreme wisdom. A monk asked Master Rong of Xinyang, the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom sat at the side of enlightenment for 10 kalpas, but Buddha Dharma did not appear to him. How was it that he did not achieve the Buddha path? Master Rong replied, this question is most appropriate. The monk said, since he sat at the side of enlightenment for 10 eons or kalpas, why did he not achieve the Buddha path? Rong said, because he did not. Now, how about if we read the uh, woman's comment once more? Yes, I, would you like me to keep going, Kim? Uh, sure. Woman's comment. You may know the old barbarian, but you are not allowed to understand him. 
If an ordinary person knows, he becomes a sage. If a sage understands, he becomes an ordinary person. Putting the body at ease is not as good as putting the mind to rest. If you can put, them, put to rest the mind, the body will not be worrisome. If you can put to rest both body and mind, what need is there for gods and immortals to sanction or assist you? Okay, now we sit for five minutes and then we write for five minutes and I'll, I'll ring a bell. Is my bell too loud, by the way? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> tell, me, tell me how this is. It's farther away. Much better. Good. Okay. Yeah. How about less than that? Just a tad. Now, now we'll write for five minutes. Hmm. Okay, now we read Goo Goo's Goo Goo. Goo Goo? Yeah, Goo Goo. And uh, so Glenn read, so after Glenn is Kim. No, yes. Yeah, Kim. One day, a monk approached Shan Master Zingyang Guinrang with an obvious question known by all monks. Although the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom sat at the site of his impending enlightenment for 10 immeasurable <laughs> Kalpos, Kalpos, Kalpas, or eons, why was he not awakened to the truth of reality? After all, 
Sakamuni Muni Buddha sat for only six days and became enlightened on the morning of the seventh day after practicing austerity for six years. So I don't know if everyone knows that for 500 years he was he was the um, attendant to other Buddhas. So it, it wasn't just six days. Master Quinyang basically didn't answer him. Had he answered him, he would have diffused the momentum of practice and taken away the chance for the monk's own awakening. The wisdom life of that monk would have been killed. Instead, Queen Rang just fueled the monk's questioning by stating, this is a very good question, most appropriate for you to ask. As we can see from the monk's retort, his, his mind was now churning. Since he sat at the site of enlightenment for 10 eons or kalpas, why did he not achieve the Buddha path? The master received because he did not. The story does not say whether the monk got awakened by these words or not. Maybe by the end of reading this case, you will be enlightened. Woman's comment mentioned the word barbarian, which in medieval China refers to anyone from the west of China. In this context, it actually refers to Sakyamuni Buddha. The term is not derog derogatory. On the contrary, it is a polite way of addressing someone who is intimate. Chen masters often say the, the opposite of what they mean. So woman's comment should be, should be read as, you may know the Buddha, but you are not allowed to understand him. In the original Chinese, the two verbs to know and to understand have the exact same meaning here. Woman is basically saying, you may know him, but you are not allowed to know him. Here lies the essence of this case. Yes. In our information age, people come to know many things indeed. Everything is accessible. News, general knowledge, the world, and spiritual paths. In the West, many people have come to know of or have heard of the Buddha. They know that there is such a thing as the Buddha or the Buddha way, but they do not really know about the Buddha or the, um, but do they really know about the Buddha or the Buddha way? What people know perhaps most intimately is their love and hatred, likes and dislikes, their life problems, vexations, old habit tendencies. Do they know a way out of these entanglements? To sincerely strive to seek out the path of freedom from them is rare. This is why, as woman states, if an ordinary person knows the path of liberation, that person becomes a sage. But why does woman say that if a sage knows the path of liberation, he becomes an ordinary person? This is because the more you study something, the more you realize how little you really know. If you study a subject and think that you know it, then whatever you know may not be worth knowing. Human progress, your own spiritual maturation, comes from not knowing from being open to and discovering new things beyond what you already know. To know something is to kill the very thing one knows. 
if something can be reified into a thing to be known, then that thing is already dead, stagnant, and lifeless. So if a sage thinks he knows this or that, he becomes an ordinary person. It is only ordinary people who think they know everything. You can observe this in daily life. Sometimes people who know a lot are very humble. They admit to what they don't know and don't try to conceal it. Those who try to conceal what they don't know or exaggerate and boast about what they know are ordinary people who, in fact, know very little. Woman's verse says, putting the body at ease is not as good as putting the mind to rest. You may also observe that those people who are caught up with preserving their bodies from old age, wrinkles, and sickness are people who are not really at peace. They busy themselves with attachments to this and that. The more attached they are, the more they become agitated. If you live a healthy life, cultivating your mind, freeing yourself from vexations, then the body will take care of itself and will not be a burden to you or become a source of worry. This unfortunately is not what ordinary people try to do. It is not their fault and they should not be blamed. Our whole materialist world conditions us in this way. Magazines on racks, television episodes, movies, all of them project a particular view of happiness that under most circumstances are a source of suffering. They project beautiful people, making ordinary folks who try to imitate them feel bad about themselves since they can never live up to those perfect images. Therefore, instead of worrying about external things like physical appearance and health, to the extent that you can, use this vehicle to understand who you are and to resolve your disease, your dis-ease. If you can put down all the issues of both body and mind, even the gods and immortals will have nothing on you. Therefore, the verse says, what need is there for gods and immortals to sanction or assist you? Roddy, you're muted. Sorry, sorry. I didn't do it. <laughs> Ordinary people always seek outside themselves for approval or assistance. They behave the same way when they come to spiritual practice. Some people practice religion to seek the approval or grace of God, while others engage in spiritual practices to experience special signs or miracles or knowledge, as if they were outside of their own being. What are all of these, if not the constructs, narratives, and discourses that we have created throughout human history. Certainly, they have helped human beings, but they have also created much suffering. If you can put to rest your attachments to your constructs, your stories of this and that, which give rise to craving and aversion, then you will be at peace. This is liberation. This is nirvana. 
When you are at peace, your environment will be at peace, at least to you. This is not to say that there is no objective reality out there that needs to be improved. You improve what is necessary, but not through a mind of vexation, craving, aversion, and ignorance. You engage with the environment and with others with peace of mind. The essence of this. I think I'm. I think oh. I'm up, Kim. Oh, sorry. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey. Um. I got so wrapped up in that last paragraph, I <laughs> forgot to read. The essence of this koan is that you are not truly at peace with yourself. To be at peace is to be content. To be content is to be free from craving. To be free from craving is to be free from aversion. To be free from aversion is to realize that awakening or Buddhahood is already perfected. Yet when you relate to others, if you don't see your own shortcomings and limitations, then you see those of others. Some people see their own flaws readily, while others don't see any flaws at all within themselves, but find fault with the world and discriminate against others. With each encounter, you automatically compartmentalize and categorize people into friend, foe, neutral, good, and bad, beneficial, or harmful. Little do you know that you are actually controlled by these things, because what is beneficial to one person may not be so to someone else. These deeply ingrained constructs, categories, and concepts control every one of your actions. You mistakenly think them to be who you are, to be what defines you. Because of your attachments to them, you lose sight of reality, how things really are, thus creating problems for yourself and those around you. The source of the challenges and difficulties you have with others and those that you face within yourself is gaining and losing, a sense of lacking, self-disparaging thoughts such as thinking you're not good enough to do this or that. But the truth is that with your shortcomings, knowledge, and experience, you are perfect just as you are. It is not that you look perfect or have no vexations or flaws, but that you are perfect with these flaws, perfect with these limitations. Practice is like climbing a glass mountain covered all over with oil. Climbing <laughs> is an impossible task, as you will slide down with every step you take. But it is still important to keep on going because in the process of dealing with this oily glass mountain, you discover your survival mechanisms, your patterns of behavior, and your own vexations. Similarly, people have all kinds of reactions to, during practice. Some, when they have a lot of wandering thoughts, will fight through by telling themselves <coughs> to concentrate more assiduously. Is that how you say that? Assiduously. Assi oh, assiduously. Others will easily give up thinking everyone else is doing well except them. Still other practice, others practice, practice, practice. But when they get to a very nice, calm place, they all of a sudden become very fearful and don't want to go any further. They wonder, what if I get enlightened? Will I recognize my girlfriend? My husband, my husband, will they recognize me? Now I'm thinking, well, I recognize myself. <laughs> about enlightenment. All the things that manifest in you 
all of these reactions are what practice is all about. Admit, amid all of these challenges and imperfections, you learn and discover how to be at peace, not to accept them passively, but to see through to their true nature, the nature of emptiness or freedom. This reminds me of when I was, um, I think maybe like teenager when I know about Zen, I, I had the same thought to, what if I get enlightenment, will people recognize me? Can I still live in this society? <laughs> <laughs> More things to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> On the things that you have learned, all of your habit tendencies and reactions are not you. They are the result of accumulated experiences that have shaped your environment. This, from the Buddhist perspective, goes beyond this life. All of your reactions and tendencies come from the karmic baggage that you carry on your shoulders. How you react to things is the result of your, your planting the seed that will eventually manifest. It is like a Santa Claus bag into which no one but you have put any presence. When you actually reach down into the bag and grab something, if most of the things you put in are quality, then you will most likely pick up something good. If most of the stuff in the bag is not very good, then the chance is high that whatever you pull up will not be so good. The acts of reaching into the bag and pulling things out are the, the occasions or circumstances through which karma ripples. They're your reactions and expectations. Mm -hmm. I love that metaphor of the bag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a person who always victimizes herself, putting herself down with, I'm no good, I can't do this or that, will most likely find things of that nature in her bag. And accordingly, when meeting with some difficulty, the same kind of attitude will manifest. Even within one lifetime, you can perpetuate a way of responding to the same circumstances. It is like planting a seed that sprouts and grows. In order to help it grow, you have to give it nourishment and the proper growing conditions. Nourishing the plant is a process of habituation. You may have picked up your own habits when you were young from seeing the way people relate to one another. An apple seed will not become an orange tree. A seed can grow only because it meets with various conditions. A change in one condition changes everything else. For example, if two seeds are planted at the same time, but a large tree blocks the sun from one of them, <coughs> oh, excuse me. It's likely that the sheltered plant will grow smaller than the other. Both seeds had full potential, but one had limitations. That is why when you plant seeds within your own mind, in other words, when you put things into your karmic bag, for example, seeds of generosity, you tend to be generous. Then when circumstances or conditions ripen, your response will be of the same type as the seed you planted. You plant a seed through every little action of body, speech, and mind. Every little thing that you do affects the whole globe, the whole environment. If you're not aware and don't take care of the little things that you do, like eating all the food you place on your plate and being frugal, you will not cherish other things either. To eat all the food you take is to cherish it as you see the whole world in it. 
in all the little things that you do, you are constantly projecting, constantly implanting your own seeds. Everything you face, all that you are, is the site of enlightenment. It is not that your vexations and habit tendencies are perfect, but your true nature is. It is like the water in a cup. Its nature or essence, wetness, is the same whether the water is dirty or clean. Should you be defined by all of your vexations, habit tendencies, constructs, and stories you create about this moment? Or is there something deeper? This is the core of the issue here. Why doesn't the Buddha become a Buddha? It is like climbing the oily glass mountain. If you were not already a Buddha, there would be no chance for you to become a Buddha. But you are clouded by everything that makes you not a Buddha. The Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom said at his side all sorry, impeding enlightenment for ten kalpas. Why didn't Buddha Dharma appear to him? This would be like someone saying a human being is diligently trying to become a human being. After he sat there for 10 years, why isn't he a human being yet? How can Master Ching Rang reply to such a question? He can't answer that question for the monk. That would spoil the fun of his climbing the glass mountain, of discovering what it is that actually obstructs him from realizing that, that he is actually a human being with a body and a mind. Beyond that, you don't need a god, a deity, or a spirit to tell you that. That said, you do have to realize that which prevents you from realizing this and to know what it truly means to live in your true nature, to be a human being through and through. When you live by your true nature, you naturally appreciate yourself, others, and all things. Naturally, you will not be wasteful or harm your environment. In your meditation practice, you won't make a chore of getting rid of vexations or wandering thoughts. What I really like about this is how universal everything he's saying is. Yeah. It doesn't apply to just Buddhism at all. Yeah, that's right. In the Chan practice of silent illumination, the first step is to practice the meditation method of just sitting. This is hard for most people because when they sit, they, <coughs> they don't want to just sit. They want to do this or that. They want to get rid of vexations or attain liberation. They want blissful states. They don't want to sit with scattered thoughts and drowsiness. So the antidote of just sitting is a cure of gaining and losing, craving and aversion. The same culprits that cause your suffering. In the practice of just sitting, thoughts liberate themselves and can be just and can just be freely at ease sitting. The true significance of the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom is none other than that of being you. In Chinese, great penetrating is danton. Ton means through, through and through, through and through. Da means great. 
The next two words are supreme wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is emptiness. What is emptiness? Relationships. So you are made up of non-you. You are related to everything else, everyone else. In turn, when a person gets insight into wisdom, which is insight into the nature of emptiness, it is at the same time the realization of compassion. Wisdom and compassion are not two wings of a bird. They are actually the same thing. Wisdom is interconnectedness. Emptiness is relationships. When you become relationships, you become everything else. A relationship, nowhere is their attachment or self. Their referentiality, this is the meaning of wisdom. Gaining, losing, wanting, rejecting, they are all based on self. Referentiality and attachment. You, you must not lose sight of who you actually are. So the case is, why is it when you sit here, Buddha Dharma or reality does not appear to you, you Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom? Why is it that when you sit, not for 10 kalpas, but for 30 minutes, reality does not manifest? When are you going to be called a Buddha? Why are you not enlightened? That's the question. If you understand this, you will become a sage. But for those already enlightened, they will not entertain such thoughts of ordinariness or sagehood, delusion or enlightenment. These constructs belong to the realm of words and language, constructs and narratives. The problem is not words and language, constructs and narratives, but our attachment to them. Oops. Sorry. Um, the problem is not words and language, constructs and narratives, but our attachment to them, taking them as who we are. Learn to be at peace. Be sad at peace. Be happy at peace. Be at peace by seeing through, by being the wisdom and compassion, the emptiness and relatedness that you are. In climbing this oily glass mountain, be at peace. Continue to practice in this way. And you will find one day that true knowing is not from knowing more, but from not knowing. This is how to work on this case. Why is it that the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom does not know that he's the Buddha of great penetrating and supreme wisdom? Why is it that the reality of who I am doesn't know reality? One day, tomorrow or 10 years from now, through a catalyst, perhaps from reading this case again, you will suddenly discover that you are already on top of the glass mountain. How delightful. You are already human.
Do you say peace is the same as equanimity? Well, I think peace is more the umbrella term because it's both internal and external and equanimity is internal, right? So we can say there's peace in the kingdom, for example, but it wouldn't make sense to say there's equanimity in the kingdom. It's a quality of individuals. I like this, be sad at peace, be happy at peace. This seems a lot to do with not seeking a goal. Um, I read um, Thomas Clary's commentary um, on this koan uh, in No Barrier, and he pointed out that apparently this great penetrating and supreme wisdom Buddha is one from the Lotus Sutra. And in the Lotus Sutra, it talks about, again, all these eons that he sat and sat and sat without um, attaining the Buddha way or I guess enlightenment, um, but he did in the end because he um, he sat in a shower of rain, and that was what brought on his enlightenment. So that that to me kind of uh, bespeaks, you know, it's not just meditation. It's not you know all this this inner inner emptiness, I guess you could say, but there's an outer relatedness that the rain um, was like he was, he was talking about here, um, the, the relatedness of emptiness and wisdom, uh, interconnection and um, relationship. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, really interesting story <laughs> and again you know more more ways to um reduce self-referentiality <laughs> don't you find that you you it's when you give up that you get somewhere you know i find that with my my artwork hmm. that I, have, I was um and then i give up and then i and then something happens you try too hard and then you just like give up and then you realize it and then it comes yeah um, or doesn't yes yes i was i had that same thought when if you read the koan he says the word achieve twice achieve the buddha path 
And then later in the koan again, he's like, why didn't he achieve the Buddha path? And so I, it was like a little clue is for me, like, well, aren't we kind of there already? I mean, isn't it, is there something we're achieving or, or is it something we're going to allow to happen? Or do we even need to reify it that much? Well, that was my thought. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like, I mean, I don't, don't quite know how to define the state that uh, great penetrating and supreme wisdom Buddha was sitting in all that time. But, you know, it sounds vaguely like nirvana. So, um, you know, is is the Buddha Dharma really all about you know being in the world? Oh dear. <laughs> um, or is it you know a, a mix of inner and outer, and that you know just you know being able to sit for all those eons. Um, you know that's that's not what makes you a Buddha. The the um, you know the, the, there's this lack of engagement somehow. Well, my first thought was, oh, this poor guy. <laughs> All right, and then I I remembered Mother Teresa supposedly um, only had one week of her life where she was in direct communication with God but it probably didn't matter to her because what mattered was the work she had to do. So I don't think, I don't think he was frustrated. Yeah, um, you know, if he were frustrated, I don't think he would have sat that long. <laughs> but remember, there is the sutras that have everything in large numbers. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Whereas Shakyamuni Buddha, he probably sat there only just those few days in comparison to the Kalpas. Mm -hmm. So if we take the Kalpas out, uh, you know, I, I think um, the great penetrating and supreme wisdom is a lot closer to us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Peg just uh, oh, she! You see that she texted all of us that she had an emergency at her. There's some emergency in her condo in Chicago. Mm -hmm. She had to attend to. Thank you. I couldn't read the whole thing. I just saw. Excuse me, and that was all. Then it disappeared because I didn't anticipate, so I did not look for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to bow out also, guys. I will see you next Monday. Thank you. Thank you. You too. So there was a statement about understanding is not enlightenment. And I, I thought that was interesting. And, and um, uh, certainly at the beginning, I thought that if I was enlightened, then I'd understand everything. I could explain things. 
why things happen, so forth. And, and um, <coughs> it would be hard to sell enlightenment to a lot of people. <laughs> they won't give you a hint in the <laughs> We want to know why, you know, how is it that people don't wear a mask or how is it that, you know, we're over the, we're around the corner, you know, any number of things. And we think that if we were enlightened, we would understand those things. And, um, and this thing we're doing is not even about understanding, which makes it really hard to explain. I love the saying, because he did not. Isn't that funny? Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the, so with kosher foods, one of the deals is that um, some of the, the, uh, the foods that are kosher have a real, uh, you can understand why they're there, why you don't eat them. But then others, you just don't eat them because it's the commandment. And that's an, that seems to be an important part of the whole process, that there isn't this one-to-one -one understanding, okay, I don't do it, because otherwise it wouldn't be a practice. Mm. One time the rabbi, or maybe more than once, but we would ask him a question and he would say, because the rabbi said so. <laughs> so there's a humor there, like, because he did not. I mean, you know, <laughs> Because that's everything we learn to do in school, isn't it? To explain things. And then, yeah. you know, X, A explains something and B shakes their head and nods. Oh, that makes sense. So he'd get a failing grade, wouldn't he, Trouty? If he just said, because he did not. <laughs> that I do not know. There were students who would uh, bring a blank page as their assignment to their uh, Buddhist questions. <laughs> and then you have to decide if they really understand or not. Shunyata. <laughs> <laughs> Did um, did y'all? Uh, how do y'all feel about the the uh, equivalency of wisdom and compassion? Are not two wings of a bird? They are actually the same thing. Do you do y'all feel like do y'all feel like that's the case, or do you feel like or not? And how deeply do we? If you know, it's well the uh, wisdom being the third, the seventh, uh, sort of the of the. You know, the perfections. Yeah. Yes. We think of compassion as more of, we'd be inclined to equate it more with generosity or one of the Brahma Vihadas, I guess. But 
I always thought that it should be its own perfection. There should be eight. But uh, yeah, the logo here is saying, no, it's a six, excuse me, that there should be seven. But uh, Guogo, but, um, Guogo here is saying that, no, there, there, there are seven. And it sounds like he's saying that wisdom is the, uh, it sounds like he's equating them very strongly. Through shunyata, through emptiness. Well, it seems that it's wisdom without compassion is that understanding that he's speaking against. I, I don't, I don't, I don't perceive that. With wisdom. If you had wisdom without compassion, you, you would understand, but you wouldn't, um, it would be separate from you. I think that's just knowing. I think that's understanding. That's the knowing like of a fox. Yeah. Of, a, of an intellect. But, but he seems to be saying that through emptiness, through shunyata, wisdom is interconnectingness, emptiness is relationships. We know those are the same thus, and we know that that is an equivalent, that, that is perfectly equivalent. Amid relationship, nowhere is there attachment or self-referentiality. This is the meaning of supreme, this is the meaning of supreme wisdom. Gaining, losing, wanting, rejecting, they're all based on the self, attachments. I love that. Yeah. I certainly spent years thinking that wisdom and compassion were two, two separate things that right. hand in hand. And then lately, and I think it was probably somewhere in this book um, earlier on, he talked about how um, as you gained wisdom, sort of wisdom in action gave birth to compassion. Um, so and this, you know, just seems like a further step along the, the path there of, of what the relationship between the two that, you know, <laughs> they, I don't, I don't, you know, it's like they're, they're like tube and throat singing. You know, they're both happening at the same time in the same person. Do you give them a gender? Um, yes. <laughs> the, you know, if you look at all the traditional, you know, Buddhist art, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, compassion seems to shift gender back and forth, but um, wisdom seems to be male for the most part. But then look in the, you know, in the Jewish tradition and there's, you know, Sophia. Um, I can't remember her, her Hebrew name, but, uh, you know, she is very much a feminine, you know, wisdom is feminine there. Prajna Paramita is, is, just, is shown as a female in her iconography. Right. And the What's the one in Buddhism? The, the green one? Oh, Tara. Uh, the one in, Tara. Yeah. Tara. Yeah. And, you know, she she seems to, you know, sometimes she's a Bodhisattva, sometimes she's a Buddha. <laughs> seems to um, depend on 
the text, I guess, or the tradition, um, how she how she's um, seen. But yeah, you're right about Prajnaparamita uh, as wisdom. Well, I know what I'm going to ask uh, ask Peg for my practice session. Which Maybe what? she'll come back. <laughs> Which is about. I'm going to ask her. I'm going to ask her about this this equivalence of. So so a little koan for me and my thinking was why why isn't compassion its own perfection? It's not the same as generosity. It's not generosity is well defined and and, and in the six perfections I'm like why 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 aren't there seven? Like you know why doesn't it have its own? Because it's a cornerstone of the whole practice. Um, but. But if you say that wisdom and compassion are, but via emptiness, if wisdom and, and relationship, if wisdom and compassion are thus equivocated, then it's a very elegant answer to, I mean, that just sort of wraps it up right there. Trouty, can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, or do the perfections go back to Indian Buddhism? Or I would think they do, but I'm not sure at the moment. Well, Mahayana started in, in uh, uh, India. And nowadays, maybe the last decade or a little bit longer, um, there's scholars who will say that actually Mahayana probably developed along with the Theravada just that it was a practice on the ground, uh, a life practice, rather than like, you know, the monasticism, we, we do not know when the monastic, or at least I do not know when monasticism started. And then, you know, then you have uh, organized society and organized uh, goals and aims how to, um, keep the society or, you know, the community together, Sangha, right, community. So I, I do not know uh, whether there were really communities of the Mahayana at the beginning, because we have the text there, you know, several centuries later, but not that, that uh, late. It's uh, around the first century common era. We can date some of them. Wow. So I, I really think your question about why isn't compassion there is a really interesting one. Um, definitely worth thought and study. When, when well, did the perfections first appear? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't oh, when, when, did the, when did the perfections as such uh, first appear as, as, as reified as their own each you know their own item when when does that do we know when that first appears or where no I don't I don't know uh, offhand no but I can probably look it up I don't know offhand because we cannot always say that the text that we have, that, that there wasn't anything that preceded. 
there is a nice book uh, on uh, literature, Buddhist literature um, by Richard Solomon. He worked on uh, the manuscripts uh, in Gandhara. And his name I is Richard. Richard Solomon. Is that what you asked? Yep. Yep. It's S A, not Solomon. Yeah. S A. L O M O N. Solomon. Okay. Richard. He signed my dissertation, but I didn't work with him. <laughs> and well, um, he, he, he did he's written a sort of history. <laughs> history he, of he's written a history of the text. No, he actually, uh, at that time, uh, when, yeah, at that time, he wasn't interested in Buddhism. I, I was, my dissertation was on uh, the debates between the Buddhists and Hindus. And uh, it was primarily about perception because the Buddhists believed only in perception in terms of uh, some kind of gaining knowledge and debating and stuff like that. So, um, well, <laughs> I can get carried away. So he wrote a book and I, I can uh, bring the title of the book uh, next time. I don't have it here with me. Oh, it came know. out about the... Uh, it's it's about a year or two years old, maybe a year, okay. two years, yeah. And it's meant for non-specialists, even though there is okay. lots of information, yeah. I've been reading a book by Gil Fronsdell um, about what he calls the Bodhisattva Yana, which he sees the development of Mahayana much later, you know, like in fifth or sixth century where before Mahayana as a movement as such, like we think of it, um, had come into being. Um, but these Bodhisattva Yana texts are really kind of the early bodhisattva or the earliest sort of Mahayana will pop up occasionally in those mm -hmm. texts. But it does seem to be a, a, um, a method of practice that arose fairly early and seems to be sort of the early steps towards the development of, of Mahayana and the bodhisattva ideals. So I will um, I'll look in, in that and see what if it, it makes any mention of the parameters. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, would you be able to say a few words about the practice, how, like how it differed from the Theravada? It seems like it's just an, an intensification of the Theravada practice. As, as much of it as I have read, what he's using is... Um, one or two Chinese texts that were early, very early translations um, that uh, the 
the people who were doing the translating, it wasn't, um, oh gosh, I cannot think of the name of the translator, but apparently he was very, very cautious and careful. And so you can use some of these Chinese texts and their choice of words. Sometimes they didn't even translate the words. You know, Mahayana becomes Moho something, whatever it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the, the practices, I just don't remember. I I'm look really at this, I haven't looked at it for a week or two and I've, it's been flooded over with some other things. Yes, yes, I understand. <laughs> but uh, a little comment, if, um, if uh, Jill uh, uh, relied on Chinese uh, sources, so those will be later, then yeah, then uh, probably Mahayana in India. Uh, some of the texts apparently are within a hundred years of when they were written in India. These were really early translations. It wasn't Kumarajiva, oh, it was earlier than that. And although Kumarajiva is, uh, is much uh, I, I think, you know, a different story altogether. It's in no particular tradition. Um, and it has been created uh, um, what used to be Khotan. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, northwest up um, from uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, um, and there were lots of itinerant uh, Brahmins that would serve. Uh, you know, to Hindus or maybe even other people uh, with, with their rituals and stuff like that. So, I mean, that, that is known. And maybe his father was, Kumarajivas was one of those. But yeah, I, I understand that it would be a different source or tradition or trajectory, yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I was surprised that the, um, there was seemingly such a short time frame between the compositions or what they see as the comp you know the dates of these compositions in in sanskrit in india and how quickly they somehow mm -hmm. made it to china to be translated so. well they they were very eager actually on, on those materials right Still about uh, compassion, so uh, maybe compassion in Mahayana, I mean, I'm shooting from my hip now. Um, compassion in Mahayana may have been uh, maybe strengthened when it came to maybe China. Uh, strengthened, became more strong, more pronounced, oh, more pronounced, yes. I. I probably have a very bad connection, so I can actually hear many of, of your sentences, not only yours, but others, they, they get a little bit chopped up. So probably I get chopped up too. So, um, so uh, when uh, Avalokiteshvara has been uh, transformed uh, to Kuanyin or adopted in Kuanyin, um, 
that may have played maybe a very important role in the spread of uh, Buddhism along with compassion. I mean, it, it occurs, of course, in the Pali Canon. That's uh, no two ways about it, but that it became popularized because Kuan Yin uh, was, yeah, I mean, and then she's, she's a female, so. Um, and the, like Karuna, Karuna in, in, in India is uh, also compassion. And although it may be something like pity as well. And Glenn, you weren't with us when, you know, back, I guess in the spring, maybe, we read, um, an Analio book called Compassion and Emptiness. I, right, I had just scooped no, up my kiddo and headed, and headed for the countryside. Well, uh, that book um, really does show how those, those two concepts um, are deeply rooted in the Theravada tradition, you know, early Buddhism. Um, Wisdom and, and uh, compassion, yeah. Wisdom and compassion. Right, emptiness yeah. and compassion yeah. in early Buddhist meditation um, mm -hmm. is the name of the I book. I bought the book, I'll go back and read it. Yeah. I had I completely forgotten about that. That might shed some light on the question. Yeah, he's so good in explaining things. Uh, it just, uh, <laughs> I don't want to put it down. No, I didn't read that one. I read some, something else. But. So is the, uh, are we the three musketeers, the last ones or whatever? <laughs> five. five of us. Yeah, the five. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So who else is there? Nancy. Nancy, okay. And Nancy's cat. Oh, let's see the cat. Let's see the cat. Mine is here no, too. He's sleeping. <laughs> I wanted he to say on, on the tongue, and he he tend to wake up at night. You know, play uh, oh. It's only noisy at night. <laughs> Sometimes play with me. They're <laughs> making up my cat. <laughs> <laughs> you talk, talk right how to speak your cat talks oh no of course not just <laughs> my own <behalf. laughs> I just <laughs> but they said you say hi. Oh, you have a dog oh, here is it coming he's here <laughs> Well, should we call it a day? Or a night? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So much Thank Goodbye. you for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. I'll take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.